This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our guest is journalist Connor Town O'Neill. We spoke with him via Zoom in October of 2020 about his book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy by publisher Algonquin Books. Writer Connor Town O'Neill is a Pennsylvania-born journalist that has had work in thoroughly northern publications like New York Magazine and has been a producer on the southern history-based NPR podcast, White Lies. He's an instructor at Auburn University in Alabama now and researched and penned the book Down Along With That Devil's Bones after more than five years of trying to pick apart some of the reasons why monuments to Confederates are still so common, like the ones to slave-owning Southern General Nathan Bedford Forrest, the first head of the Ku Klux Klan. There are at least some 31 in Tennessee. There's the county in Mississippi, the city in Arkansas. There's a school just outside of Atlanta named after Forrest, and they're having a debate right now about whether they should change that name or not. There's probably, all told, there's probably over 100, you know, if you count street names, school names, statues, historical markers, those blue plaques. Yeah, I mean, he's everywhere. And in the book, he explores not just odes to Forrest, but to other racist and problematic figures from Southern history. And he digs into how even those from the North, like himself, that wish they were absolved from the current presence of the memorials, could and should feel otherwise. We'll explore more details of the book and of the life experience of journalist and writer Connor Town O'Neill on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Paul Shankman. Connor Town O'Neill, thanks very much for being with us today. I enjoyed the book. I'm not sure enjoyed is the right word. It was really enlightening. Uh, it's, it's a good read, but it's a tough read sometimes uh, because sure. of the subject matter. Um, the, in the title, the devil that's referred to is Nathan Bedford Forrest. Your story actually starts in a cemetery. One of those great uh, journalism stories, sort of like Watergate with the tape on the door leads to that whole thing. And in your case, you were a journalist in town covering a story and looking for a parking place. And that's where everything started to come together for you. Tell us that story. Yeah, absolutely. So it was... The 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, the um, attack by Alabama law enforcement uh, officers on nonviolent demonstrators at the foot of uh, Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge. This is at the sort of height, the climax of the civil rights movement in March of 1965. The late John Lewis at the front of that march, fractured skull um, when the when the police uh, descended on the marchers. Uh, And so 50 years later, President Obama was in town to give a speech to cross over the bridge in, in commemoration of that of that anniversary. And 40,000 other people showed up for the day. And, and Selma's a small city. So when when 40,000 people show up, Secret Service is in town, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to find a parking spot. And so I figured I might have some luck over in the cemetery. It's just a couple blocks uh, from from downtown. It's one of these, you know, very sort of midnight in the garden of good and evil 
cliched Southern cemeteries, mausoleums, Spanish moss, got its own system of roads. And so I think, okay, I'll, you know, I'll stash my car in there. I'll, I'll jog down to the bridge and I'll catch this speech. Uh, and I ended up finding way more than I bargained for. So as I pull in, I, I start to see signs stuck in the grass that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing. And, you know, that's kind of catnip for a reporter. So <laughs> get out of my car and I, and, I, and I walk over and there are a couple of people sort of scowling at me as I approach. Uh, and I just ask them, you know, sort of naively, honestly, um, what are you what are you what are you doing here? You know, are you standing guard? What's what's the deal here? And and come to find that this group, the the Friends of Forest, at the, as they call themselves, had spent you know, the better part of two decades by that point fighting about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate general Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up uh, and had been stolen. And then there was a big fight about whether or not they could replace it. And so they were out there that day because they had won this battle in federal court that was going to allow them to put up a second statue of Forrest. Uh, and they were sort of preparing the grounds for that rededication and the, the dissonance of that, encountering this neo, group of neo-Confederates on a day of, you know, somber civil rights commemoration, uh, really struck a nerve and kind of gave me whiplash. Honestly, I didn't know much about who Forrest was or what it meant to put up a monument to him in 2015, but it, it had, it, it really sort of stuck in my head. And so... I start to read up about Forrest, start to find that there are these monuments of him across the South. There's a county named after him in Mississippi, a city named after him in Arkansas, state parks, schools, and of course, all of these statues. Uh, so, so I start poking around and start researching a little bit. And then that summer, the Charleston Nine murders happen. And, and soon after Dylan Roof is arrested, journalists find his blog and it becomes clear that in in a way to sort of steal himself for that massacre and this attempt to spark a race war, he had gone on a kind of sightseeing tour of slave memorials and civil war sites and plantations. And, and so in the aftermath of, of, of the Charleston Nine murders, it sparks a referendum on, on Confederate symbols, the flag, monuments, schools named after Confederates. Uh, and because of this encounter that I had had with, uh, with the Friends of Forest, I decide I'm going to start following some of these uh, protest campaigns aimed at forest monuments in particular. And so that, you know, that that's then the next five years of my life following these stories. And so the book follows four of them. It uses the battle over the statue in Selma as a kind of precursor for these um, the, the more recent battles we've had in the last couple of years over Confederate monuments. Now you're a northerner living in Alabama, teaching in Alabama, which is why you were there. Um, did you know much about Nathan Bedford Forrest before you started this? Because I think most people above the Mason-Dixon line, unless they saw Forrest Gump, where there's a sort right. of passing humorous reference to him, uh, don't know much about him. Who, who was he exactly? Yeah, that's, that's, that's all I had to go on before that, you know, I stumble into that cemetery. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know much about him. He's not sort of part of the lore growing up in in, in Pennsylvania. But, you know, I talked to Madison Smart Bell, who's a, the great novelist from Nashville, uh, who, who has a book, a novel about Forrest. And he told me that growing up in Middle Tennessee, Forrest was just the water that you swam in. So it really is a regional thing. He's this kind of mythic sort of white folk hero for the for white Southerners. Yeah, are uh, there more statues of him than Lee? 
Uh, there are more markers of him in Tennessee than there are to the three presidents who are from that state. Yeah. So it, it sort of goes to show that he, you know, <laughs> even even when you've got presidents from your state, he sort of looms larger, um, at least symbolically, than Jackson and Johnson and Polk. Yeah. So he's everywhere in the Deep South. And he's re- and he's really controversial, too. He's seen by the people who want to venerate him as this kind of instinctual military leader, a uh, self-made man, you know, unlike Lee, who is this embodiment of the sort of Southern gentleman uh, who had gone to West Point, uh, one of the first families of Virginia. Forrest, by contrast, you know, grows up poor, didn't go to West Point, hardly went to school at all. I, I use this with heavy scare quotes attached to it, but was a self is seen as a sort of self-made man. Of On course, the backs scare- of other men that he, he it, sold. Exactly. Thus, the scare quotes. He was a, a slave trader in Memphis, by some counts, one of the richest men in the South before the war. And, and Memphis is really the sort of inland capital of the slave trade. After the uh, transatlantic slave trade is made illegal, uh, almost a million enslaved people are moved from the upper South down into the, the plantations of the deep South. And, and, and a lot of them coming through Memphis, thus the, the phrase sold down the river. Forrest was the one who would profit from that selling down the river. So he, he makes a fortune in the slave trade. He equips his own cavalry regiment. Uh, at the outbreak of the war. And he enlists as a private, you know, again, he's not the the West Point type, He but distinguishes himself as a, a military leader, as the most promoted soldier from the North or the South over the course of the war. And there's a good amount in, in how he's remembered in, increasingly over the course of the 20th century, how he's remembered has a lot to do with how he's used or not used during the Civil War. He's the sort of like, people that want to Monday morning quarterback, the Civil War will point to Forrest and say, oh, you know, if only he had been promoted sooner, if only, you know, he had been given the shot that Lee had to really win this war, you know, then the South might have won. So that, you know, the sort of South will rise again. People are thinking they'll do that through Forrest. Um, and, you know, Jefferson Davis has to sort of account for that and apologizes for not seeing his his genius, his military genius earlier. After the war, he's the first Grand Wizard of the Klan. Um, so, have, you know, is, is central to the undermining of Reconstruction and returning the South to ex-Confederate rule, leading to the implementation of Jim Crow. And, of course, to allow them to hoist statues to their heroes, which is why we have so many of these Confederate monuments. He was also uh, operated a a convict leasing plantation, uh, a system known as slavery by another name. So, so yeah, his, his life touches on so many of these uh, really important moments. You know, he, his, his early life moves westward with the trail of tears. Then of course the slave trade, the civil war itself, but then it's aftermath, the Klan, convict leasing. So, so looking at, at Forrest was a really revealing way of, of, of looking at this history, both what led up to the war and the, in the aftermath and the, the long consequences of, and the unresolved tensions of the war afterwards. You followed four examples in your book. Any idea how many statues there are or things named after Nathan Bedford Forrest in the South? Oh, um, that's a good question. There are at least, you know, there are some 31 in Tennessee, I don't have a t- I don't have a number for for the South there, but you know, there, like I said, there's the county in Mississippi, the city in Arkansas. There's a school just outside of Atlanta named after Forrest, and they're having a debate right now about whether they should change that name or not. Yeah, I, I'd say it's it's there's probably all told there's probably over a hundred. You know, if you count street names, school names, statues, historical markers, you know, those blue plaques. Yeah, I mean, he's everywhere. 
Well, and you know what's astounding about it when you think about it is in a lot of these cities where these markers or memorials or statues are are black majority cities or at least cities with substantial black populations. You'd think if any place was able to get rid of these things, it would be those cities, but not so. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think it it that underscores who the intended audience is for a lot of these markers, you know, sort of reminder of recalcitrant sort of white power, even in places like Selma or Memphis. Where yeah, because these weren't put up right after the war. They were put up decades later. No, that's right. Yeah. You know, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center does a great job of keeping track of you know, the numbers of monuments, and then, of course, also charting when they go up. And you see the two big spikes in Confederate symbols come in, you know, the turn of the century. So after Reconstruction had been undermined and the former Confederates are returning to power, they go about, you know, hoisting statues to their heroes then. Um, And then, of course, in the middle of the 20th century, as a sort of symbolic response or rebuke to the civil rights movement, and that's especially when you see names of schools come to get Forrest or Lee uh, or, or Stonewall Jackson or Jefferson Davis as a sort of response to Brown v. Board and, and efforts at integration of these schools. Um, well, and of course, in your book, one of the four uh, memorials, I guess you would call it, uh, although it's not a statue, is at uh, Middle Tennessee State University, uh, where it's just a building named for him. That would be easy to change, you would think, but not in Tennessee. You'd think so. Yeah, you'd think so. Uh, the There's a sort of, you know, almost Kafka-esque process that you have to go through in Tennessee to, to change anything, you know, that, that monument or his, that bears a historical name. Um, it requires a super majority of votes from the state's historical commission to approve any change there. So when, when students on campus at Middle Tennessee State wanted to change the name of Forest Hall, first they had to convince the school to do it. And that took a whole year of, of protests and forums and debates. And then finally, they convince the school administration to do it. But then the school administration had to ask the the board of regents that oversees that. They convince the board of regents, but then the board of regents has to take it to the historical commission and the historical commission says no. So it was this, <laughs> this long slog of, you know, trying seeking a, a official approval to change Forest Hall that was ultimately futile. And I think for a lot of people involved in that protest movement kind of underscored the bad faith nature of that debate that, you know, one, they felt like racism shouldn't be debated at this point. But then the fact that they had to do it through so many sort of arcane bureaucratic processes only really underscored the the fact that this was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, in the case of the statue in Memphis, it was obviously the same process. It went on forever. And the only way they finally got anything done was this sort of I don't know if you'd call it a loophole, but this kind of end run that they did to be able to get rid of the statue. That's right. Yeah, I think they finally they realized, you know, twice the city of Memphis appealed to this this same historical commission to get this 30 foot bronze equestrian statue of Forrest uh, taken down twice. They were denied by that commission. And so they finally decided, like, you know, there was there was a massive pressure coming from uh, a grassroots movement in the city to try and get that statue down. There was the looming anniversary of 50 years since the assassination of Martin Luther King. And so I think the city felt a lot of pressure to get that statue down and eventually sold it. They sold it to a, a county commissioner for, I think, or they sold the park, rather, that the uh, that the statue was in. And then once it was privately owned, it wasn't subject to this state law, the Heritage Protection Act. 
And, you know, as soon as the ink is dry on that bill of sale, the statue comes down. So, yeah, it was a pretty canny loophole that they threaded. The state legislature was pretty angry with them for doing that and withheld some funding that they were going to give for the uh, bicentennial celebrations of the city as a a kind of uh, retaliation for that. But, yeah, it was it, it, it took some doing, but they managed to get the statue down finally. Coming up, our guest Connor Town O'Neill will address the current debates about monuments to outmoded historical figures in context with current social justice reckonings. More and more people are seeing them and, and seeing the wrong in them. You know, ideally we can see it as a beginning. They're symbols of these deeper underlying broader inequities, whether that's the extrajudicial killing of black Americans by police officers, the disparate deaths by race from the coronavirus, exposing the unequal access to healthcare that we have. In so many ways, if we can use the uprising against these statues to tune into the deeper wrongs that they're symbols of, then I think that that can be a really useful way of of furthering protests and furthering reform. That and how he got started writing and researching his book, Down Along With That Devil's Bones, when Talking With Authors continues from ATC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Well, this became a very personal thing for you uh, in reading the book. It wasn't just this sort of dispassionate journalist going around and writing down some some facts and figures, which is really what makes it interesting and and very moving in parts when you're talking about, you know, trying to uh, reconcile all this with your own north of the Mason-Dixon line whiteness. Um, talk about that a little bit because that's an unusual approach. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I first started the book, there was so much to cover and report on so many people to talk to archives, to visit monuments, to see, um, that, that at first it felt like, oh, I could do a much more sort of dispassionate third person, uh, approach here. But what I came to see was that Well, one, like in the case of Middle Tennessee State, that approach might play into the kind of bad faith, hear both sides approach that they were they were really chafing against. But what I came to see more deeply as I was reporting this was that I did have a stake in it and that I wasn't it wasn't it couldn't be a sort of dispassionate treatment because I came to see the ways that the whole country was implicated in these debates and to not point out that. Uh, you know, a good white liberal from Pennsylvania couldn't absent himself from this debate, which is what we like to do, which is, you know, because I think the received wisdom growing up in the North, especially was like, oh, the Civil War, that's a Southern thing. We're above the Mason-Dixon line. We're affiliated with the Union Army. We're on the good side of this. We don't really have to think about it. And, And in the same way, we think, you know, oh, insofar as race is still a problem in this country, it's a problem in people's hearts. And it's, it exists down there. But really, uh, the more that I dug into the sweeping history that is embodied in these monuments, the slave society that was creating massive amounts of wealth for people in the North as well as the South that was leading up to the war, the ways in which the racial hierarchy that the Confederacy sought to protect persisted long after the end of the war and existed in the North 
in just as it existed in the South, I really sort of had to come to reckon with the ways that that race had shaped my life too. you know, the ways that my school was zoned and funded had to do with race, the ways that my parents were able to, you know, apply for loans and buy a house, the neighborhood that they could buy a house in had to do with their race, the way that I was seen by police officers had to do with my race, you know, all of these different ways, all the, the different lines that my life was built on had to do with this, the frankly sort of psychotic <laughs> ideas of race that that exist in America and that are meant to provide opportunities to some at the expense of others. It's convenient for Northerners to think that that's just a Southern thing, but you know it's really not true. This is a country, for instance, that has a ten to one racial wealth gap. You know we're we're still struggling with the the kinds of tensions that made the Civil War break out in the first place. We just like to think that we're exempt from it. So so one of the things that was powerful about the process of of reporting and writing this book was coming to see the ways that I was implicated in this debate and then finding a way of showing that in the book. And and ideally, you know, as as more it seems like more and more people are coming to understand the way that, that that race is shaping their life and think more pointedly about ideas like whiteness. I hope that the the journey that I've been on in the past couple of years can be a sort of surrogate journey for the reader, too. I guess for a lot of us who maybe knew that there were these statues around, didn't think about it much. But if you take a few steps back and look at it, it's sort of, wait a minute. You know, in, in countries where wars are lost, the first thing they do is pull down the statues of the people who were leading the other side. I mean, after World War II, you know, they started renaming streets that had German names. And if you if you go to Berlin, and I think maybe you've been, uh, the whole town is nothing but an apology. There are all these memorials everywhere. There's certainly no statues of Hitler anywhere. So how did it get to this point? Well, I think you know, you're right. Like the the losers <laughs> typically don't get to put up statues. But I think we can read the the presence of all of these Confederate monuments as an indication that even though the South might have lost the military conflict, ideologically, the ideals that they were fighting for persisted. This is a whole lost cause mentality. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that the war might have led to the emancipation of the enslaved, but the justification that they were using was not just that some people happened to be enslaved. No, the black Americans that were being enslaved, that was their sort of natural state. That was the argument of the of the Confederacy. And they were telling really anyone who would listen. You know, if you go back and look at speeches in the build up to the war, Jefferson Davis, Alexander H. Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, were, were saying, look, we are fighting explicitly to maintain slavery and expand it west. And we're doing it because there's an inherent inferiority in black Americans that justifies this, you know, morally, uh, this moral abomination. Um, they're content with it. They're they're just a, a subhuman. And so the war that the Confederacy lost meant that emancipation would be a result of the war. But that that deeper lie about white supremacy and, and black inferiority persists. I mean, you know, it's we still have this racial hierarchy because we haven't been able to address that root cause of the war. And so one of the expressions of that failure to really reckon with the deeper issues of building a country as a slave society are these Confederate monuments. So I think, you know, back to your previous question about coming to this from a northerner, I, I sort of came to understand a much deeper history and a, and a much more lasting problem of the country sort of through the back door of, of seeing the way that it's expressed in the South. 
So a few of these things have come down. We had a monument here in, uh, oddly enough, Forest Park, 1R, not 2, because uh, <laughs> I know there's a Forest Park for Nathan. I know. I've been, I've been misspelling Forest for years <laughs> now because I want to put that second R in. But in our Forest Park, there was a Confederate memorial that uh, became controversial during all of this, and it was taken up. And the idea is to put it in a museum someday, which is, seems to be always what they say. Oh, well, let's put it in a museum someday. I don't know that any of these are actually going to museums or the museums have space for them, but at least that's what they say when when they take them up. But as this continues, if it continues to grow, is it a sort of a, a palliative? I mean, after Barack Obama was elected, we all said, oh, it's post-racial America now. Hey, I mean, is that could it die right there? I mean, again, this is, you know, so much of this work has revealed like the ways that we use history in convenient ways and, and use symbolic gestures as a way of sidestepping deeper, tougher questions. Yeah, I mean, right. So a couple a couple have come down and that's that's certainly a good thing. And especially I think there's there's power in a lot of the images that we've seen this summer of just a sort of organic expression of will of the people. You know, there's great, great footage from Birmingham, people trying to get down this massive sort of obelisk that was in a downtown park in Birmingham by throwing a chain around it and attaching it to the back of a pickup truck. The chain snapped before the obelisk came down, but it was still that that sort of that uprising of the people to try and get it down, I think was really powerful. Uh, in a small town of Virginia, people just taking sledgehammers to the, the statues in the courthouse square. I think that can be really powerful. And I think the hope is that people understand it as a beginning, right? They More and more people are, are one, just seeing them. You know, I think we'd sort of been habituated to these statues and just kind of taking them for granted. Um, more and more people are seeing them and and seeing the wrong in them and, and wanting to get them down. And I think that's good. And I think, you know, ideally we can see it as a beginning. It's wrong because they're symbols of these deeper underlying broader inequities, whether that's the extrajudicial killing uh, black Americans by police officers who are able to do it with impunity, whether that's the disparate deaths by race from the coronavirus, exposing the you know unequal access to health care that we have. In so many ways, if we can use the uprising against these statues to then you know tune into the deeper wrongs, the deeper inequities that they're symbols of, then I think that that can be a really useful way of, of furthering protests and furthering reform. You know, the long difficult process of, of squaring up to the history of this country that is we like to think of as flattering us and being about forging a, you know making the union more perfect and and being this history of progress but that there is this lasting injury here and we should feel called to take responsibility for it what is your take on the slippery slope argument that I assume is what uh, is being made you know once you start this where do you stop so many presidents great presidents uh, we're slave owners. Uh, I mean, once you go down this road, how do you get off of it? Or where do you stop? Or do yeah. you stop? Should we just take them all down? I'm inclined to defer to the people who live in the place, the particular place where those particular statues are. If they want them down, then they're going to try and get them down. If they want them to stay up, they're going to do what they can to try and get them to stay up. It's always going to be that sort of power struggle. In terms of the slippery slope thing, I sort of welcome referendums on people whenever they happen. Again, I think we have this sort of naive view of history that it needs to be all good 
or that figures from our history can't be complicated, nuanced, contradictory figures. So, so yeah, they, I think I think we're getting closer to a consensus on the Confederate monuments. I think most people are willing to admit the wrong there, and that to defend them now, you have to be more explicitly sort of <laughs> white supremacist in your in your in your views to defend them. Um, and then the and then the more complicated ones like the founding fathers. I think it's great to have a public referendum on who they were and what their legacy is. Whether or not they come down, I don't know. But asking people to, you know, wrestle with the fact that these men that were taught to revere these sort of geniuses of the Enlightenment that were able to construct this country that's predicated on liberty and freedom, they can be complicated, contradictory figures who who also stood for really abhorrent ideas, like the idea that you might count an enslaved person as three fifths of a human, you know, is in the Constitution. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. I th- and, and, and enslaved people themselves and, and thought that, you know, like Jefferson, that, you know, was justifying that enslavement again on this idea of, of black inferiority. So if the, the referendum on their legacies, I think is great. I mean, especially when it seems like the prevailing view in how we interpret the Constitution now is that these men were infallible. And the only way we can think about how to interpret the Constitution was by somehow like looking into their heads and trying to understand what they meant. So so having a, a reaction to that being like, no, maybe these guys weren't perfect and had some really abhorrent ideas that led to a lot of inequity that we should look to think twice about and, and undo rather than double down on and just take their word as gospel, I think is, is really important. And, and, and I welcome it. Well, it's certainly an interesting topic and one that uh, we can't solve in the half an hour or so that we've got to talk <laughs> about it. But uh, I do really sincerely recommend the book. It's uh, really interesting, very thoughtful, very thought-provoking. Down Along With That Devil's Bones is the name of the book. Connor O'Neill, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for reading and thanks for asking such thoughtful questions. That was our guest, journalist Connor Town O'Neill. We spoke with him via Zoom in October of 2020 about his book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy by publisher Algonquin Books. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The interviewer, producer, and editor for the video version of this episode was Paul Shankman. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. 
Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.